So how do we want the podcast to start? Like, where do we start the episode? Oh, we're doing it. Okay. Right. No, like, no, from here, from this point on, we're, we're recording the episode. Okay. All right. So like from right, from right at this point, right now, in this moment in time, in history. Yeah. Tell you what, how about I make a silly noise and that's how we know the episode has started. Okay, great. Did you get that? <laughs> well, first of all, I've known you for about 30 years. I've never heard you do that shit. I didn't know yeah. you could like, I had to make quack a like a duck from the back of your throat. That sounds uncomfortable. I, I didn't like doing it. <laughs> and I don't want to again. <laughs> well, then no, don't do it to yourself. It, it feels weird. Like it's, it's like, it's like, um, it's like the back of my throat is a car wash, you know, okay. with the, the spinny guys. That's what it feels. Oh, like. okay. Yeah, I thought you were saying like your uvula is hanging down like those those the fucking soapy mop strands. Yeah, yeah, basically. That's uh, yeah. Honestly, if you're ever gonna get high, if you're not into getting high, that's great. But if you want to try it one time, get high, get in the passenger seat of your friend's car yeah, and go drive. to the car wash. Yeah. Don't drive the car yourself because I'm mean, for a lot of reasons, but also because it's very disorienting. Like you have to put it in neutral and stuff. You yeah. don't, you don't have to deal with any of that shit. Get in your buddy's car and just enjoy the shit out of that fucking three minutes inside the car wash because it's, it's like better than any Disneyland ride. I can, can I, say that with confidence. Can I just tell you, I completely sober, no substances in my system. Um, I had to get the car washed last week. Um, and so I was like, all right, cool. I know how long the car wash takes. Here's what I'm going to do. We have a car wash at a 7-Eleven near us. I'm going to go in. I'm going to get a snack. I'm going to get in the car wash line. I'm going to chill, and I'm going to eat the snack, and I'm going to play a game on my phone while the car wash is happening. And I enjoyed watching the car wash that I didn't go on my phone. Think about how hard it is to get someone to not be on their phone for four fucking seconds. And yeah. just think about, like... I was just in there and it was like the sound and the movement. And I was just eating my 7-Eleven hot dog, drinking my soda and thinking, this is a, this is a pretty chill way to spend a, <laughs> 10 minutes. This is a good 10 minutes. Yeah. 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 And I sprung for, I didn't get the cheap one. I didn't get the $10 one. I went for it, dude. I got the $12 one. The bikini wax and everything. Yeah. 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 They, they do the nails. They do the anal glands. They do all of them. <laughs> yeah, I told you about that shit. The, the, the well, okay, anal glands. The anal gland thing. Yeah. Now, now we have to touch on it briefly just because we can't just mention it. You can't it say anal glands context. and not talk about anal glands. That's a thing. If you have a dog, that's yeah. a thing you have to do or yeah. pay somebody else to do. You have to express their anal glands. Um, I would argue that it's a thing you have to pay someone else to do because I'm not doing that. I mean, it, you can do it yourself, but like... Most, you know, um, dog bathing places, dog, sure. uh, whatever, whatever you call them. Groomers. Pets, called, whatever. Groomers. groomers. Thank Unf- you. Unfortunately, yeah, yeah. this is a term that's been co-opted by the media lately, but that is the term for what they are. Oh, oh, like because like pedophiles. Yeah. yeah, no, I, was, yeah. I wasn't thinking about that, but I am oh, now. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, anyway, they, most groomers provide this service and it's like an extra $10 or $12 or some shit. Yeah. And they will express your dog's anal glands. And you go like, yep, sign me up for that. We'll do the nails. We'll do the anal glands. And I'll even tip you because yeah, that, that's what? not some shit I'm trying to do. You, you bathe the banjo? You bathe the banjo yourself? No. Okay. Just because he 
fucking he doesn't like it. He's not oh. a water dog, and he's he a really big boy, and he's a big dog. So it takes two of us, uh-huh. and it's winter time right now, and like in the summertime, we'll hose him down in the backyard. But sure, right now, yeah. Uh, hey, check it out. I don't know if you okay. remember this, but yeah. uh, this is an interview podcast. Oh, sure. And uh, I was thinking we recorded an interview uh, a couple weeks back with Justin Kim. His full mm-hmm. name actually is as uh, as labeled in the title of this, Kangman Justin Kim. Uh, he is an opera singer. Um, and not only that, but he is a counter tenor, which we will explain a little more. Um, or, well, he will, he will explain a little more in the episode. But he basically fills uh, a very specific niche within the opera world. And he's in huge demand and he's, he's, he's famous. He's famous within that world. Um, Yeah. He's working and he is a, he is a draw. I'll be honest, man. When I first met him, like what, six or seven years ago, Mm -hmm. I was like, this dude is so legit and so frustratingly competent. I don't know if I'm fucking with this guy. I don't like, I don't know. Uh, I mean, it turned out very quickly. He ended up being a wonderful dude and like he and his husband are good friends of mine now, but like he, I mean, he is hot shit and I don't think he's, um, he lacks humility. It's just Mm -hmm. that he, he fucking knows. I was like, I wonder, like, you don't need to have perfect pitch to be a good musician, but I would argue that it helps. Especially if you're a singer. There's that dude, um, Charlie Puth. Is that his name? Yeah, Charlie Puth. He's a Puth? Puthay. <laughs> I think it's Charlie Puthay. Puthay, yeah. <laughs> uh, who, who will go on, like, talk shows and shit and show off his perfect pitch like a party trick. And I'm yeah. like, just make dope music. And I don't sing his music. And I'm like, all right, this is pretty dope. But like, I, you know, I've been around music for some time. I have good relative pitch, right? Like if you say, sure. this is a G and you play a G, I can tell you where C is, right? And I can sing you where C is, okay. but I can't just like pull a note out of thin air. Right. That's what people with perfect pitch can do. And for me, like as a bass player, it's not a bad thing to have, but as a singer and especially the type of singer uh, that Justin is, I think it's a pretty good asset. Mm-hmm. He's a he's a known entity in a number of circles, which I think makes him a perfect candidate for hella interesting people. Yeah, is that the name of this hella interesting people? Yeah, because we're hip. That's a dumb fucking name. <laughs> hey. How's it going, Justin? It's going well. Yeah. Everything is peachy and beautiful. I can't tell if you're saying that ironically or if you mean that. Or if you just woke I think up. I, I think I mean it. And no, I, I changed my hair color this morning, so I okay. did not just wake up. Um, nice. Because I'm doing this role right now, Hansel and Gretel, um, singing Hansel, and I had like unicorn pink, blue, purple hair, and um, they put this heinous like wig on me that was like black and made me look like a car salesman from like 1967, (laughs) and the conductor was like, "Um, this will not do, so um, he's not going to wear a wig, like the conductor decided, not not even the conductor. Wait, yeah, so why... How does a conductor get to decide what what uh, a performer does oh. with their hair? Um, when a uh, director is completely ADD and incompetent of like making any decisions, um, then other people have to like step in. Okay, uh, that makes and sense. 
that's the case. So the conductor was like, no. And then the costume designer kindly asked me to like, could you possibly have like more normal hair color than yeah. pink and purple? And I was Work. like, okay. So I made it more blonde. For sure. Hopefully that means it's uh, less flammable when the witch puts you into the oven. <laughs> she doesn't quite get there though. Because, you know, we put the witch in the oven and then oh, turned that's her right. into gingerbread. Right, yeah. Or is that like a spoiler alert? Because you know, <laughs> it seems like you didn't like read. <laughs> I'm not I'm not caught up on my grims. I just got to the Billy Goat's Gruff. Don't tell me what happens. <laughs> that's kick their asses that's all i can tell you yeah so you're in dallas right now i am in dallas texas wow it is a state <laughs> texas is a state well a i, I have uh i have your touring schedule yeah. open here and dude it's like it's yeah. fucking wild like I, I knew that you traveled quite a bit for work but you're just like i'm looking uh -huh. at the schedule you're just tearing up europe next year like budapest venice switzerland yeah yeah, I mean, it's pretty normal, I guess, but next year is especially crazy because a lot of the things that were postponed during COVID um, right. kind of are happening these seasons. And also, like, um, my agent was thinking that he was being, I don't know, prudent by accepting a lot of gigs and thinking that some of them would like get canceled during winter season and then they just don't get canceled <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. like, i have to be in two places at the same time um very often like when i'm rehearsing in one city slash country like i have to be like performing in another so a lot of like back and forth overnight tra um, trains and flights and stuff that yeah. never even occurred to me like you have to like say you're in okay Barcelona and Singapore just those are two cities like like yeah. you go to Singapore to do your gig but you still got to worry about that shit you have to do in Barcelona the next right. month and you have to fly back and forth for the yeah, rehearsals. Yeah, so like for example, like um, the Hansel and Gretel I'm doing right now, they started rehearsing at the beginning of October, but I didn't get here until a week ago. So I was two weeks late to the rehearsals. So I got all of the rehearsal, like the staging video sent to me. And, and I learned the music and the staging on my own while I was performing another opera in Venice. Mm -hmm. And like, uh, as soon as I arrived, I went straight into the rehearsals with all of my colleagues who have been here for like two extra weeks. And we open in like, four days so yeah. there's an incredibly quick turnaround oh, yeah and, so know. yeah my colleagues have been rehearsing for over two weeks or almost well my colleagues have been rehearsing for like three weeks and, and i only got here last week so um i had to learn all of my stuff on my own like practice in my apartment in venice um mm -hmm. have like the staging uh, and the music like blasting in the um in the apartment it seems like you didn't have uh, you were prepared, but you weren't uh, granted the opportunity to prepare like with the full ensemble. No, I couldn't do that. And normally, uh, um, this is like an exceptional case, but also it's not really an exceptional case because I have to do this like at least two more times in the coming six months. So sure. like I wow. would be rehearsing in one place and then like learn my stuff um, for 
some other city and just arrive and just go with it. Like you, you show up to a show in, uh, in Dubai and you start singing in Italian. You're like, Oh fuck. That was not, that was, that was the one from last time. <laughs> I mean, honestly, um, not, not on stage, but in rehearsals, similar things have happened. Cause, um, uh, last time I was here in Dallas, like I had the craziest um, travel schedule where I went uh, back and forth between the US and Europe like two times in four weeks. Uh, no, two times in two weeks. And I was in four different cities. That's what I was trying to say. So mm-hmm. I like started in New York and then I went to Prague, I think. And then I went to Dresden in Germany and then I flew to Dallas and then had to do like a concert right away and then flew back to Europe for something else. Oh, so I guess that was like more than um, four cities. But um, that was crazy. And I was so, like, I, I mean, I, I didn't even like jet lag at that point because I didn't have a time zone, right? I just <laughs> right. slept whenever I felt like sleeping and then I just woke up whenever I felt like waking up. And in one of the rehearsals, I actually started singing like, parts of another aria that i had prepared for like two gigs ago um in in the middle of like another song and then i had to like catch myself and be like oh wait no something's not right and then we had to like start again yeah yeah well at least you didn't like say it in bed with someone like the name of another opera (laughs) (laughs) that would have been very confusing yeah certainly (laughs) yeah yeah for sure so what would it be safe to say that you are comfortable living this more of a transient lifestyle or are you like more of a homebody like do you go back to Paris in between gigs like how do you how do you deal with that um I am personally very happy just kind of living out of a suitcase yeah and I think a big influence was my dad when I was growing up because um, he worked like all over the world since I was little. And um, what did he do? Um, he worked for LG Electronics and worked in the motors team. And, you know, like nobody knew about LG like 20 years ago, but now I think LG is everywhere, like home appliances, like you, you've seen the refrigerators and like yeah. um, phones. I think I'd, I think I had an LG phone. And phones, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, my dad's uh, work was a big part of that because, you know, he got LG motors and um, devices into like the Japanese market and in the US. Um, actually, LG used to be just sold under whirlpool as kenmore yeah oh sounds familiar yeah it was kind of like the whole i mean similar approach as like toyota and lexus you know um when american consumers weren't really um i don't know (laughs) comfortable with buying a a brand that didn't have a a guy named ken's name in it exactly something like that yeah yeah and um so lg used to be sold under zenith and Kenmore only in the U.S. And um, eventually when Samsung became big and, you know, like people were like, whoa, Asian brands are actually incredible. (laughs) Um, LG became its own thing. And yeah, so um, my dad traveled so much. He was in Japan like every week uh, when I was in elementary school. 
Um, and when we moved to the States, uh, he was in Chicago, but like also traveling around a lot. Actually, there was a point in like, I think when I was in third or fourth grade, my dad was away for like eight months wow. in South America. Um, wow. And I just like didn't even realize that my dad was gone because I never saw him at home anyways because he went to work at like six in the morning and came home after midnight. Right. Um, now is, is this normal in Asia? So this is in South Korea. This is in South Korea. Can, yeah, can we give the listeners? Eleven. Right. Okay. So I, I kind of was curious to know the chronology of that. So you grew up. Yeah. Uh, or until you were 11, you were speaking Korean and Japanese. Do I remember you saying that right? I knew a bit of Japanese because my grandmother was educated in Japanese. Um, and it was like a dad, colonization you... situation, right? Japan colonized. Exactly. Korea. Yeah. yeah. And um, she actually, like, if you opened up her phone book that people used to have, um, she yeah. had <laughs> written everything, like, in Japanese, like, hiragana and katakana and stuff instead of Korean because she was more um, comfortable with that. And whenever she babysat me, we would watch like Japanese programs. Okay. And also because my dad was in Japan like every week, um, he would bring me all the super new video games and like um, taped VHSs of Pokemon and Sailor Moon and all these things that weren't out in Korea yet. Hell so yeah. I was like a year and a half ahead of everybody. And like I knew Digimon like before everybody like it was cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's interesting because you think of did you grow up in in Seoul or Busan or I don't know the many countries. In... Yeah, near Busan actually. Um, just about a like an hour west of Busan in Kimpe. Okay. Um, that's where I grew up in Korea. It it occurred to me that you're you're saying that um, you know how much more uh, advanced or like how Japan got you know the the cream of the crop. Tech, tech stuff early yeah. i think of seoul and like south korea as just as big of like a an influential like cultural hub as tokyo but that it seems like it was a little this behind this is more like um a phenomenon that happened in the last like 20 years i would say because before that it was all about japan like mm -hmm. in asia um you would go to china and people would be like wow japanese made this oh japanese made that even in korea everybody was like super anti-japanese because you know we still have generations of people who were heavily affected by the japanese seas but um at the same time they kind of knew that things made in japan were like superior but now korea has kind of surpassed that um i don't know level of quality or uh, korea became its own thing and we're more independent and uh we're also like known like that, that also like 20 years ago was around the time when taekwondo became like an olympic sport it's not mm. just judo anymore it's taekwondo too and mm. everybody in korea uh we were listening to like j-pop music but now japanese people are listening to k-pop music um, and watching K-dramas everywhere. And um, yeah, so um, the shift happened during like my adolescence, I guess. And it was kind of amazing to experience that because um, for example, like when I first went to elementary school and knew Japanese, like I wanted to show off um, that I knew Japanese, but because I grew up so close to Busan, uh, which is like the part of Korea, South Korea, that is the closest to Japan, um, kids hated the fact that like i knew japanese and they were like 
trying to bully me because I mm. knew Japanese, and I like deliberately tried to forget Japanese because um, I didn't want to be, you know, singled out for being the betrayer of our own country or something like that. You know? Wow. Yeah. And um, but now it's like kind of cool to know Japanese. Um, so things have changed, and uh, yeah. I want to. I, I want to say last time we spoke, you were at five languages. Is that was accurate? it? Okay. Um, maybe so maybe it was I more. Know, That's just the only ones I recall. Um. So I. This was 2018. Korean, yeah, Korean and English fluently. Sure. Oh, so since 2018, like my French has gotten a lot better. Um, okay. Because I'm um, working on getting my French citizenship now, so I had to like pass an exam, um, to, you know, um, put it into my dossier uh, right. and so i have a certification for my french now um and italian i speak um uh, spanish a bit and german i can like get by like i can cancel a subscription of a rail card in german without a problem a bit of stutter stuttering but um yeah i've done it so um that's where my German is at. So yeah. between you and your husband Beranger, you, you all speak yeah. it's like a twenty-seven language household or something. You guys <laughs> yeah. just like are so goddamn worldly. The the thing with my husband though is that like every language he speaks, he can speak at like a fluent level, you know. Yeah. Uh, whereas I I am conversational in the Romance languages and like German. But he is fluent in Italian and fluent in Russian, and mm -hmm. so wow. yeah, he's um, more about quality, and I'm more about quantity, I guess. Yeah. Okay. I mean, well, so when applying that to like uh, to your work, I imagine a lot of operas are in one or either like German, Italian, French, yeah. maybe English sometimes. Mm -hmm. If you don't, if you don't speak all of those languages fluently. Yeah. Do you then just memorize the lines phonetically, or do you have to yep. know exactly what it is saying? So, um, if you're doing your job correctly as a singing operatic singing actor on stage, you should be learning the lines phonetically as well as for their like meaning. So, right. what I personally would do is I I go for like word for word translation of everything that I'm saying as a character um, in whichever language. And then I, I find like the poetic translation of each phrase. So I know what I'm saying for each phrase because a lot of the times like old Italian operas use Latin grammar and they're not written in prose, you know? So um, they're not conversational. They're all like poetry. So it's kind of hard to um, know the meaning. So I get the poetic translation and then I write the text over and over and speak it with um, a native person like listening to me to make sure that I don't have any like strong accent when I say these things. Mm. And then I learn the music after that um, to incorporate the music into the language, not the other way around. Um, because if you incorporate um, language into the music, then you're trying to like fit some you're trying to fit sound into sound whereas if you put music into the text then you're utilizing music to enhance the quality of the delivery of the meaning and the text and that's where the drama occurs not just 
you know, this audio um, phenomenon. Um, yeah, that's so a great that's way how to I put work. it. Yeah. And uh, recently, like in Venice, about, um, a month ago, I want to say, but literally a week ago, because I was in Venice, um, I was singing an opera in Latin that was written by a 11 year old Mozart. Whoa. Um, yeah, it was one of his very first operas um, that he had written. Oh, literally was... Mozart. Oh, I, I thought you were using Mozart like metaphorically. Okay, yes. Okay, no, cool. But literally, <laughs> uh, Mozart wrote this when he was 11 years old. And um, the book of this opera or the libretto um, was in Latin. And Latin is not a language that I have studied. I know how to kind of like read it. I know mm -hmm. how to read um, the Germanic pronunciation, classic pronunciation, and um, like the modern pronunciation. But I had, it, it was so much work to do the word for word translation and try to like memorize each phrase because latin grammar is fucking nuts like they have verbs over there and nouns over there and they get rid of propositions like it, it's just it's yeah it's right. hard and it took a little longer than i had hoped um mm -hmm. but it is part of the job and that's what i get paid to do so you know, yeah i do it suck it up and do it <laughs> yeah i mean even if you're doing what you love, even if you're chasing your passion, like I'm sure there are mm -hmm. some times you're just like, all right, I guess I got to put on my big boy pants and do this, this shit that like, I don't know. I mean, same thing with like video games too. You know, sometimes you just have to get that one item and you love the game, but then you have to like <laughs> grind for hours and hours and hours, and, but you still do it because like, you know what the end result is going to be and you still love the game. Yeah. And, I would not, yeah, it would I not would... have occurred to me that you would have made that comparison, but I really I'm like currently that. playing Diablo 2 Resurrected and season oh. two just began like two weeks ago. So like I'm like grinding hard right now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. You're a blizzard you're a blizzard guy. I'm a blizzard guy, yeah. Okay, I started cool. with Starcraft in Korea and then um, oh, yes. WoW and um, Diablo 2 uh, three sucked. So I kind of quit <laughs> Yeah, that. when you said you said you were playing two, I was like, Oh, that's like retro. I didn't realize they they pre released or that a remake or they did a resurrected like okay, cool. about a year ago and it's exactly the same game like all the coding is exactly the same they didn't try to like update anything but the newer patches are kind of making the you know um the game experience a little better the graphics are better of course and you of can course. play it on nintendo switch which is great for me because i need to travel and having a handheld that can switch um is really yeah nice. man yeah yeah being able to travel Speaking as someone who owns a Switch and travels, it's just having the whole game in there, being able to play yeah. like, oh, I can play every Mario Kart on this plane right now. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The greatest. Yeah. It's sort of like an iPod for video games. It is. Yeah, because you got everything on there. Like, I mean, there, there's been handheld systems before, but nothing with this kind of power that you can then, if you want to, put on your screen. You know, that's, right. the, that's the dope thing. Yeah. I suppose iPod is a little bit... Well, it's not retro. Fuck, is iPod retro? How old are we? It is, uh, I would argue, it yes, it is somewhat retro. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we fine. were in, like, what, seventh grade, eighth grade, when, like, the first generation brick iPods came out, and then... Yeah. Eighth we grade went through right. all the generations of iPods and the shuffle and touch and all that, and now they're gone. Like, they're obsolete. I, <laughs> I, I remember being, like, 
when the video one came out, I was like, I could not imagine technology better than this. This is incredible. You're telling <laughs> yeah. me I could watch Aqua Teen Hunger Force on a screen this big? Are you joking? And now it's like, yeah, I, I've got like, yeah. I mean, my phone has the processing power of like 200 of those fucking things. Right. Right. Yeah. Oh my right. god, all the struggles that we had to go through in our <laughs> teens, downloading shit on 56k modems, and right. now it's just like, oh, I just downloaded like 600 megabytes worth of like Netflix that I can watch on this plane ride um, yeah. in literally three minutes. Um, yeah. Yeah. What you were talking uh -huh. about kind of reminded me, you know, we're on computers and, and sort of... Uh, turn of the millennium technology i want to hear more about your youtube channel because i was watching that shit and like it's got over sixty-two thousand subscribers and yeah. ba based on what you told me it, it's sort of uh it's something that actually brought you a certain amount of fame and money before your opera career kicked off yeah so youtube i started um because um i guess i was semi-depressed my sophomore year in college yeah, buddy. Um, Sophomore <laughs> year, that was the year. That was the depression year. Oh, hey, yeah. oh my god, me too. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, sophomore year was uh, rough. Yeah. And um, that's when I also took my uh, acting classes for my musical theater certificate at Northwestern. And um, there was a acting, um, well, in the acting class, we would learn all these things. Um, about like Stanislavski and Meissner technique and like comedy unit and clowning and things like that. But then we couldn't put any of that into actual practice because um, we just didn't have the performance opportunity. And um, I, I noticed myself watching a lot of YouTube videos to like pick myself up uh, when I was just sad and unmotivated. And I was like, wait, I can put these things together and like I can make YouTube videos and try out all these acting techniques and um, things that I've learned and do it. Uh, I can create my own platform for performance. And also like if that can make other people happy, even greater. And that's why uh, my channel's like tagline was putting a smile on your face because hmm. whichever um, video I made, I, I first needed it to be like well scripted and had to have an element of um, acting technique in it and two i also watched a lot of disney channel back then like <laughs> hannah montana and reruns of that's a raven and zach and cody sweet life all that and i wanted to um, create something similar where uh, a child can watch it and it's okay and like they're babysitter can watch it their grandparents can watch and like everybody gets like different um things out of it because there are a lot of sexual innuendos in disney channel stuff yeah that we didn't realize when we were young but now it's so obvious well and that didn't occur yeah wanted... Th that didn't occur to me that yeah i mean i haven't seen all of your youtube videos but like from what i've seen it's not blue humor at all it's all like like even if it if it uh, appeals to adults like a kid can watch it and it's not gonna harm yeah. them and uh, there were a lot of like young moms who would message me when i was doing my channel like actively saying that like i love your channel because i can actually watch it with my kid mm -hmm. and um it's um i can enjoy it but my child also um picks up on like catchphrases and um it it's 
it created like bonding experience for them and stuff. So that was That's something great. that motivated me too. And eventually the channel became big enough so that I became a YouTube partner back in like, I don't know, 2008 or something. And I got like um, pretty regular um, paychecks from them so that I could like pay rent with it and stuff. So that Hell was yeah. pretty nice. Yeah. How do you, what do you mean by YouTube partner? Like an actual partner in the company? So YouTube partnership work? is something that Google like um, offered because Google got YouTube and then um, they would put Google AdSense um, ads next to the videos or like in the middle of the videos. Now, like the ads are everywhere. But back mm -hmm. then, like YouTube didn't have ads unless if you were a YouTube partner, only partners got to have the ads. And we would um, get money for each impression, which is just the visibility, or if people clicked on it, um, then we would get like a portion, um, a, a greater uh, amount of money for each click. And um, that's why I did a lot of like makeup parody videos because I learned um, that if I do makeup videos, then they put makeup content like ads next to my videos and people are more likely to click on them and then that would generate more money instead of mm -hmm. like five cents per click i would get like 20 cents per click for makeups stuff right. and um yeah so well that's i why uh, i did those videos yeah. i just saw the your most popular video on there has like a couple million views i think maybe more it's the one it's like the prostitute makeup one yeah, sure. Yeah, that was like a parody of Michelle yeah. Fan, who was a very big YouTuber um, doing makeup videos. Oh, okay. And then I like kind of parodied her, um, you know, like how she makes her videos, how softly she talks and what kind of music she has in the okay. background, things like that. And now she's like a business mogul. I mean, she's got like makeup companies and she's also like... Um, I don't know, invested in like Bitcoin. I don't know. Like, but yeah. So an early crypto adopter. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. So let's let's dip back into uh opera quickly. Um I've been informed yeah. that you are a countertenor. Now I, counter I know I know what that means, but mm -hmm. I'm sure that our listeners No, I I don't I actually I actually don't know what that means, and I would love to know. What what does well, what is that uh and what is the What does it uh, mean to you though? <laughs> Oh, what does it mean to me? It means it's it's a yeah. it's a tenor that you can get without having a prescription. I have no idea what it means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, over the counter tenor. Um, exactly. Yes. <laughs> so, counter meaning you know against. So it goes against like a normal tenorism, I guess. Um, but counter tenor is basically a voice male voice type that is anything um, kind of like. The singing range of a countertenor is anything above a normal tenor vocal range. So like the extreme high notes. So like in pop music, you could argue like Freddie Mercury, Adam Lambert, uh, uh, Mika, these are or Justin Timberlake. These are some examples of people who would use their falsetto mm -hmm. or reinforced head voice to um, sing in extreme high male vocal range and in an operatic in an operatic um version like counter tenors are basically that so um easily put we're guys who kind of sound like women were, were that i mean 
<laughs> I don't want to be insulting, but like it, back in in the day, like a long time ago, like uh-huh. were those were those roles saved for Unix? Was that a thing in Opera? So it was a big thing in um, Opera because, first of all, like women could not be on stage. And this is like 17th century we were talking about. Like in Shakespeare's times, women couldn't be on stage. So all the Shakespeare plays were played by men and men only. And like young actors, uh, young boys would portray women and like retired actors would portray the nurses and all these like hags, I guess. And in (laughs) opera, um, because opera is an extension of theater, um, that similar practice still um, existed. And at the same time, there was this um, tradition in Italy of castrating boys before they hit puberty in order to retain their um, adolescent voices, I guess. Yeah. And then um, use that, um, whoa, I think my heating just went on. I didn't, sorry. Um, So uh, in Italy, they had this practice of castrating young boys um, to retain their youthful voice. And then when their body kind of like bodies developed um they would have the lung capacity of an adult male while having the range of a woman and they were kind of like the rock stars of their time and a lot of operas were written for these um godly people um and they portrayed these kings and um also gods like bigger than like uh, larger than life kind of characters and then, um, so these roles these days are now either interpreted by sopranos, mezzo-sopranos, like women in drag, or um, people like me, countertenors, who are like guys who sing really high. Is the mezzo-soprano in the same way, uh, range, but just applied to women? Is there a difference? So um, within the countertenor realm, within the umbrella, there is a huge range of different voice types. And anything that you can find in a female voice type, you can find within the countertenor realm. So like you can find Tweety Bird, Coloratura, like super high sopranos, all the way down to like contralto, like share equivalent, you know? Do you believe in life after love? Exactly. Yeah and um anything in between so like soprano mezzo soprano contralto you can find all of that in the countertenor um bach we call it bach is the german word for the voice type and um i sing in the more mezzo soprano range personally right now is uh, a counter a countertenor's vocal technique is it does it uh, exclusively use falsetto or do you ever like go in the chest voice? So um, I would say around like 50 years ago, um, yes, mostly falsetto and almost exclu- exclusively falsetto. But um, nowadays um, things have changed a bit. And um, I sing with reinforced head voice um, more than falsetto. I rarely ever sing in falsetto because um, the way falsetto works is that you only vibrate half of your vocal folds 
to create mm -hmm. the sound that is more hooty and it doesn't have a lot of um, overtones, but that kind of sound doesn't carry in an operatic setting because like we need to cut through an orchestra of like 120 uh, instrumentalists. The hall has like 2,700 people. And in order for the voice to carry, you need some cut in the voice and the cut comes from chest voice. And so I use chest voice and like head voice reinforced with chest voice, but never or almost rarely um, in falsetto because it's just too weak. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, you do both. Yeah. Can yeah. you I'm not going to ask you to sing a full aria or anything. Can you quickly demonstrate the difference between the head voice? I don't and know chest if voice? it would actually. So chest voice is like your speaking range. So, yeah. uh, oh, would be a chest voice, and then head voice would be like, oh, this is more head voice, and then falsetto is like, oh, this is falsetto. All the same oh, note. okay. I didn't know falsetto was like was different. It's like another level of head voice. Yeah, because you're only using half of your vocal folds. It's not fully vibrating. So you get a really like hooty, um, almost like empty tubular sound right. um, from falsetto. And um, yeah, and it, you can hear the difference much um, better when it's like in the lower register because when I'm like an octave from like, ah, ah, from here, this is that voice, and then this is falsetto. It's not too hmm. different. You know? I can hear it. I mean, it's I, yeah. I, I, you it, can hear it, but not yeah. as drastically as if it were like lower. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Remove, remove. Yeah. Like if I heard them separately, I, I don't. Mm -hmm. I'm not certain that I would be able to tell. Like if I heard them uh -huh. fairly far apart. But yeah, like it, it's right. just it's a little tighter. The falsetto. It's a little. It sounds a little like smaller. Is that just me? It the falsetto doesn't have as many overtones, so sure. it sounds more flat in the quality okay. of the sound. So that can that can also mean smaller. It can mean tighter. Yeah. Many words can describe uh, the difference. Sure. Yeah. So after you, I'm just gonna go back a little bit. After training at Northwestern, how quickly yeah. did the gigs start coming? Like, did you immediately seek out countertenor roles? Were you like, this is my niche. This is like where I'm trying to get. Or like, how did that process kind of unfold? Well, so at Northwestern, I studied musical theater along with voice and opera, but musical theater was like my passion. It was my childhood dream. <laughs> yeah. But um, back in, this is like 2010, 2011, um, they didn't have Hamilton, you know, <laughs> uh, with the exception of um, Brandy and Whitney Houston's uh, Cinderella that was on TV, or do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. Singing, it's yeah. possible. Um, Right, With yeah. the exception of that particular Cinderella, there was no such thing as like race blind casting. Um, so I was very limited to only singing Asian roles if I ever pursued a career in music theater. And that that is something that was told to me by agents and industry professionals um, around the time I was graduating from college. And, um, but somehow like in, in opera, opera was a lot more, um, uh, racially accepting. 
that's I really surprising like to me prince well but you can't just like have i mean first of all like italian composers all the composers wrote stories and wrote operas about people from all over the world and one of the greatest uh composers in opera puccini is known for his madam butterfly like he had never been to japan but like he had this um fantasy about what the orient was like so he kind of put um whatever sound that he thought was correct into his opera and wrote this thing as an italian man sung by italian people so like opera's history has been race race blind do you say that i don't know like colorblind yeah um yeah, so, that's, that's, that's wouldn't, a, yeah I, I guess I would. I mean, it's it's surprising to me that opera, which is a much more like old fashioned and just old uh, crafts, uh-huh. um, would have less of that than something like mu- musical theater, which you'd think would be incredibly uh, accepting and inclusive. Well, I think um, in opera, because like who just like it they they're very similar in that we sing the text right everybody just like burst into singing and then it's not real but in music theater they try to at least 10 years ago or 15 years ago they tried to achieve a sense of reality like realism was like an important thing in music theater so that's why people have to look the part and sound mm-hmm. the part and all that. But in opera, opera has always been about like suspending your disbelief and just reveling in this universe that cannot exist, but somehow does. And um, it's about larger than life. And for that reason, nothing has to be like real we all just kind of subscribe to the fact that it is not real and we should just enjoy the fantasy. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it can be colorblind. It can be a bit more gender blind. Um, it, yeah, it just allows you to um, kind of explore and go crazy and people enjoy that shit. So here, I guess here's here's a question that I have following up on that. So your your original passion is musical theater. Now that the musical theater world has changed, post Hamilton mm-hmm. or post what have you, uh, I mean, I clearly you're incredibly busy with specifically opera. But do you have any like personal desire or draw to do something in a more musical theater space? I mean, I do sometimes get offers um, uh, for musical theater, theater, also film and TV, mm-hmm. but they're they book so late opera like i'm booked out for two years oh okay (laughs) um but in music theater um i don't know you start auditioning 10 weeks before rehearsals um Mm. i recently got a um request for my schedule um availability request for a film that's shooting in the first quarter of 2023 and i'm like that's not even six months away yeah, I, I can't commit to something like this. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I would like to, because even though opera is my medium, what I want to do as a singing actor is aided by the medium that is opera for the moment. But if the circumstances are right, I would love to explore other media too, because 
why not? And yeah. um, well, there's a lot you... more money in film. <laughs> well, sure, sure. Yeah. I guess I'm wondering, would you consider opera or, or musical theater to be, for that matter, as more of a musical craft or a dramatic craft? I always look at it as more of a dramatic craft. Um, but um, you need to have like the top level music capabilities mm -hmm. um, or whatever to be able to do this. Because um, in opera, I mean, opera is like the triathlon of, you know, <laughs> of, uh, theater because not only do you have to act but you have to sing but you also need to like learn foreign languages and it, there's so much more than just like singing and dancing and being on stage um, mm -hmm. and you need the classical music training and it, it is um, yeah and you have to do all of them all at once without microphones not amplified right. Yeah. Ooh. Well, I <laughs> yeah. had the I had the pleasure of uh, seeing you in action a couple times. Uh, the most recent of which yeah. was uh, you had it, I believe it was one of your breakthrough roles in London. You were uh, you were the first male singer to appear as the character Cherubino in yeah. Marriage of Figaro. Is that correct? Uh huh. Yep. Congratulations. Yes. Uh, you. You, you did a great job. I I will admit it was because it's Europe. It was incredibly hot in there, as you know. It was like ninety yeah. degrees Fahrenheit in that fucking opera house, and yeah, I I was like kind of, of it dude it was so hot, and I was like trying. I was kind of complaining to myself like oh it's so fucking hot in here, and then I'm like wait a minute, Justin has been on stage for at, for like three hours now, either in a wig or under a blanket or both. <laughs> I I'm gonna stop my bitching and just appreciate <laughs> this performance. Yeah, that um, that staging with like staying on that couch with a blanket over me for like twenty minutes. Yeah, it is torture. It is really really difficult because I mean that particular production they had period costumes, so all of the pieces were like made as if they were um as they were worn back in this eighteenth century. So there were so many pieces. Um, everywhere and the wig and this and staying under this thing with all the lights um, yeah it it's hard sometimes and you still have to like kind of smile through everything on stage actually one of my acting teachers in um, during my masters he said nobody's paying you to um, nobody's paying you to show your pain only smile like <laughs> And that is so true. Like he said it as a joke, but like is a half joke. Hmm. I that's also surprising to hear because it's it's drama. I mean, don't you yeah. don't you need uh, conflict? I guess. Yeah, but then um, you know when you look at the thespian mask, um, it's it's half smile, half frown, mm -hmm. and you always need to have that kind of smile and also like in singing technique the smile the concept of smile is very important because there are a lot of singers who like as soon as they start singing they just like frown and they mm. can only sing about pain and like misery but they can't sing about like joy and all that because they're like frowning so i guess um the idea of smile kind of helps you to relax from mm -hmm. that and also the way your diaphragm works um 
if you are imagining like a smiling motion with your diaphragm, that is like a very healthy way of supporting your voice. Because mm-hmm. diaphragm is something that's controlled by the muscle surrounding the diaphragm. Not You can't control the diaphragm itself. So you need to kind of like smile with the muscles and then like the diaphragm will like relax and then like suck the air, uh, create a vacuum for the lungs to fill. You're uh, referring to the intercostal muscles. Exactly. Right. See, I know things. I, I took a few <laughs> voice lessons. Uh, hey. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I, I learned that like, it's actually not like you can't move your diaphragm by yourself. Like it's, it's the, no. it's that sort of, uh, um, oh, for fuck's sake, what's the word? Corset. There we go. Good job. Oh, Mike. Yeah. Uh, it's like, it's like a kind of a corset of muscles that you're sort of, uh-huh. you know, uh, stretching and, and manipulating and stuff. Um, yep. And that, that you know, it. obviously that, that is the, extent to that of what i know about a vocal technique but obviously like i'm a, I'm a musician i think i have a pretty good ear and i think i told you this when i you know the next day after i saw you uh, i mean your performance was um melody wise and tonal wise flawless and hey. like I'm, I'm i mean i'm saying that as a compliment to you but also just very matter of factly i mean it was like there's a reason why you're hot shit at this <laughs> because well because you fill this specific niche but you just do it so like you just you have you have the you're armed with the arsenal you're armed with the tools and i'm not saying you were just born with all of it like you really worked your ass off to get there but you were kind of talking about like you know you have to it's a dramatic endeavor and you have to just come with the musical chops just already in the canon ready to go yeah and there's that extra challenge for me too because so many of the roles that I sing are historically sung by women and women only. And countertenors um, didn't come into like the operatic scene until like 50 years ago. Before that, countertenors were only like in choral music right. um, as this like texture. But like people didn't know that countertenors could sing the way that female mezzo-sopranos and sopranos could. So these roles were not given to countertenors. And, and the fact that I was the first male singer to do Kirbino, which is one of the most iconic mezzo-soprano roles in um, opera repertoire, many people were going to be in the house just to see me fail and mm. compare me to a mezzo-soprano and be like, oh, like if they hired a mezzo-soprano, like it would have been so much better this way, so much better that way. So I not only have to sing well, but I have to sing just as well, if not better than the greatest mezzo-sopranos of all time. Or like I get judged and everything I do is a failure in these people's minds. I feel feel like going to an opera is an awfully expensive way to um <laughs> to take someone down or like to to discredit someone or like watch them fail you would think but like you know in asia they have this like um anti fan club culture um where people will like buy out tickets just so that they can go to the concerts and like throw shit at the uh or like scream boo or things like that and also there's a um history of um, booers who go to La Scala um, in Milan, Italy, just yeah. to boo at the performers. And 
another thing is that like when you look at the prices of opera tickets they are comparably not that expensive like if you were to go see i don't know like a gaga concert how much is sure. that going to cost you right but like the most expensive ticket at the metropolitan opera is like $350 but there are people who pay like 2000 3000 for you know floor seats for gaga sure. so like when you compare those two like um opera is not too expensive like you just sure. you just need to have the passion for it and if your passion is to like dislike people on stage and you know pick on their uh mistakes or appearances and whatnot i mean good for you if you have the money it's still gonna pay my bills right <laughs> yeah i mean i mean that's true you can kind of flip it in such a yeah. way i thought you were gonna say they, they buy out tickets and then don't show up so that the stadium's half empty and you're like cool so that's in my wallet though <laughs> right yeah but, like, <laughs> opera people will still go to the opera okay that's yeah, yeah it's right. not like you know like a trump rally or anything sure i'm Dude, just saying I still i still get like text messages from like the trump campaign because i signed up to go to a bunch of like rallies oh to like, then, like keep it empty yeah well that was free though it was free yeah Every town, every major town has a showing of Rocky Horror Picture Show, like, at least once a year. I feel like you could, yeah. you know, or, like, The Room or some shit. That's just an example of a cheaper way of, of ironically uh, either liking something or disliking it or just being somewhere, like, in, in this, like, middle ground. In this, like, like I mean, post-ironic middle ground. Being able to yell yeah, but, at the show, yeah. Hey, yeah. yeah. But, like, you still go to, like, the movie theaters to see shitty films and then like yeah. kind of scream at it and be like you suck you, you know it's the <laughs> similar idea like when you think about it like you already pay the subscription for netflix we all do right so yeah. like paying extra 15 dollars to go to a movie theater is mm. relatively expensive when you have like gazillion movies that you can watch at home for free that yeah. you probably pay for um, and the idea is similar in Europe where like the taxpayers are, are paying taxes for the arts, right? So the state sponsors these um, state theaters and um, the ticket prices are way, way lower. You can get like an opera ticket for like 20, 30 euros. And people go there knowing that they're going to dislike the opera. They're, they're going to dislike the staging or... Um, people still go to the theater um, to watch something that they know that they're going to dislike, but they've already kind of like paid into it, like the monthly subscription of paying taxes. And then like, yeah. Okay. Um, well, so there's the monetary aspect, but also opera is so fucking long. Like there are just so more, so much many, so many more time efficient ways to shit on somebody than sitting through. I mean, look, man, I, I love you, and I'm super glad that I saw Marriage with Figaro. That motherfucker was like four hours long. It is one of the. <laughs> it was. It is one of the longest operas. But like, for example, Hemsworth Well that I'm doing, um, which is opening in like five days in Dallas. Um, this opera, there are three acts. Act one and two combined is like hour and ten, hour twenty, mm -hmm. and then act three is like forty five. 
right? So That's everything civilized. put together yeah. is still shorter than like an Avengers film. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so it's not that long. Yeah. Yeah. And there are a lot of like shorter operas too. Um, like modern operas tend to be shorter because people are like, yeah, we don't need another like Wagner size, like five hour long opera. So right. a lot of modern operas are shorter. And um, also uh, we make cuts. So like a lot of like fluff that aren't like conducive to the storytelling or whatever. Like um, we just cut them and make opera shorter and it's like a normal practice but yeah i i will say you saw one of the longest operas ever because <laughs> i don't think there's another version of marriage of figaro that is done as long as like as lengthy as the one that you saw because that one is known for its length well justin i get you know you're welcome that's all i can say <laughs> So I wanted to, uh, I saw something on your website uh, that, that struck me. Yeah. Uh, it, it talks about all the accolades you have in Baroque repertoire and contemporary music and also mentions uh -huh. Mozart's trouser parts. And I, I purposely yeah. didn't look up what that is because I just, I, I know what <laughs> I want it to be, but can you explain okay. what, what trouser parts means? But um, what do you want it to be first? <laughs> Well, you know, we were talking about eunuchs earlier. Yeah, I think you know what I want it to be. I just, <laughs> I just want it to be a dick joke because life's well, a dick I, joke. I, I, well, yeah, but I want you to like explain it in the most graphic way possible. Didn't he? Is was this Mozart or maybe this is Beethoven? Fuck, I remember that that somebody Jack White and one of the guys from Insane Clown Posse did a song that was like about eating ass, and it was. A, okay. a, a cover or like an interpretation of I want to say Mozart, but it could have been a different classical composer. Oh no, it was German. So it is Mozart. It is Mozart. Yeah, Mozart okay, was, yeah. you know exactly Mozart. what I'm talking about. Mozart's Austrian. Austrian. Yeah. Okay, yes. Okay. Wait. So, so you yeah. know what I'm talking and about? Even I... in the film Amadeus, they talk about this. Yeah. He had a crass sense of humor, that dude. I mean, Mozart does have a song about like, oh yeah, like he wrote about, um, I don't know like genitalia he wrote about um you know brown humor like all that like he did all that back in brown humor is in like so. like scatological humor yeah oh okay i found it it is jack white and then saying clown posse it's not one of them it's it's the entire posse lech uh, lech my im arsh it's yeah based off a mozart piece so with that said um Mozart's trouser parts. <laughs> I've accepted yeah. already that it's not Mozart's throbbing member. Why don't you explain to me what no. a more, more wholesome uh, definition of it? Yeah, so um, a trouser part, um, also known as trouser roll, um, these are rolls. <laughs> that um... doesn't make it better. That doesn't make it less sexual. <laughs> <laughs> Um, these are uh, operatic roles that were written for women to portray men. Oh. So um, these are the roles that I sing very often because um, most recently I sang one in Venice like a week ago, but um, that was my seventh Mozart role and sixth uh, trouser part. So um, I specialize in it because no other countertenor has sung so many um, of these 
trouser part or breeches roll, we also say. <laughs> no, nah, I'm, I'm good with trouser part. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Is that um, the new okay. name of this podcast? Trouser parts. <laughs> Are we the trouser, trouser parts? parts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, awesome. man. So um, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I just wanted to ask you a couple more quick things. Um, and I, this may be a silly question. I don't know. But some jobs, they come with higher highs and lower lows. It, yeah. Is that the case with opera? Like, you seem to be happy doing what you do, but are there times when you're in a performance or a rehearsal or on a mm -hmm. fucking plane to Texas and you're just like, oh my God, fuck this. Like, <laughs> I want to be home in Paris or with my family or, or whatever. Like, get me out of here. Um, I never. Um, really? It's very nice. easy for me to say never because, so it's kind of like a very long roundabout way of saying this but um i grew up christian presbyterian and i was a church band leader and like i was very active in the church community and you know accepted jesus christ as my savior and all that but that to me like the one of the most meaningful um parts about being a christian is how you accept uh the finality of death mm. and as a teenager, I just accepted death. And it's like, we're all going to die, right? And it's more about like how you get to that point that is important and not so much about the death it's, itself. So um, from that point and on, I was already like kind of um, glass half full kind of person. But then I kind of became like, no, glass is always full. Like it's just overflowing and um, anything that I do, even the hardest parts, um, I know because I experienced this hard part, um, I'm going to have something to compare this to in the future. And then I'm going to be able to enjoy things even more because I had the lows. So um, anytime something tough happens, uh, I just think, wow what an amazing life experience for me to have hmm. because this is going to only strengthen me in the future. And also this is a testament to how far I have come because like this could have killed me six years ago, but now it's only something that I'm going to struggle for the next two days. And then I'm going to be completely fine. And everything just becomes so positive and annoying to most people. Um, but for me, like it gets me going. And, and you uh, operate with gratitude the whole time, it seems. Hell yeah. All the time. All the time. And that's also Christianity, you know, being mm. thankful. But I, I am truly thankful for the life that I can have right now um, because it is not something that I could have imagined growing up as a little gay boy in South rural South Korea. Um, but, like, I get to travel around the world like my dad did, and I get to, like, you know, play video games while I'm traveling mm -hmm. and see the world and I don't know, eat all the delicious things and meet new people, all the things that I love. And that and that's really, that's, that's just so good to hear because like, I, you know, I've known you for a little while. Um, you're a positive person and you do operate with gratitude, but you're not, you're not like operating with any bullshit. You're, mm -hmm. you're not the fake smile kind of, um, disingenuous person you just are genuinely like i'm i'm blessed i'm fucking 
I'm doing this thing that I love. And even yeah. the hard parts are just like, they're just bumps, they're just wrinkles that can be ironed out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the fake, you know, fake niceties come from like trying to mask the dark side. And that is just as toxic as being negative, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you can actually use the negative and um, actually use that to strengthen the positive, then it can always be genuine, I think. Mm-hmm. And like, I have to apply this to my professional life so much too, because, you know, like, I'm in Texas. I meet a lot of people here who do not necessarily agree with my lifestyle or say things that are kind of off color or off this, off that. And it, it is my, I can at that point be fake smiley and fake nice and be like, oh, actually, blah, blah. No, I can't, I can't do that, but I choose not to. I, I face the facts and I say, okay, these are the things that um, they're voicing right now because they're hurting some way. So they need to like express it a certain way. So mm-hmm. I'm going to get to the core of that statement and then talk about that instead uh, instead of trying to be nice and just like passing by. And mm-hmm. um, that just like works for me because I can always be genuine. And rather than being nice, I can just be concerned. Mm-hmm. And somehow that can um, move all of us forward together. So, Justin Kim, Kangman Justin yeah. Kim, what the fuck is your name? What do you want to be called on, on the title of this podcast? Um, just go with Justin Kim. Okay. Or, I, I, you know what? Go Kangman Justin Kim because we talk about, like, my opera life. Um, okay. The reason well, why I okay. use Kangman Justin Kim is because Kangman Kangmin is my, um, it's my given name quote-unquote, sure. because um, I chose the name when I was in first grade in Korea. Um, I had a different name growing up, but then um, it was the, I had a Korean name that was kind of the equivalent of um, American Ashley, mm-hmm. where in the past, like Gone with the Wind, like Ashley was a boy's name, but right. now is no longer um, a boy's name. It's only associated with girls. Um, So I had a name like that and I was very effeminate. So my mom was worried that I was going to get bullied too much. Mm -hmm. So she wanted me to change my name and I agreed. And then we um, came up with three names and then I chose the one that I liked the most, which was Kangmin. Okay. And um, eventually when I became an American citizen, my dad um, said, I want you to like not lose the fact that you were born and raised in Korea. So mm-hmm. if possible, if you're okay with it, can you please keep Tangmin as your first name and use Justin as your middle name? And then um, I said, yes. And mm-hmm. when I went professional, um, I told my dad, um, it'd be so much easier for me to go with Justin Kim because it's, easier quicker less confusing but um my dad was like well i still want you to remember that you're korean he just really wanted me to retain my heritage and i'm very grateful for that and it also um allows us to have this conversation and Mm -hmm. this um is another opportunity for people to get to know me so that's cool 
I think our listeners have gotten to know you pretty well if uh, if they didn't know you already. Um, thanks so much for talking with us, man. This was really fun. You're welcome. Yeah, Can I, we didn't there... talk about knitting. What? Oh, well, dude, I mean, you, you have the floor. So I, I was going to say, do you have anything to promote or do you want to just talk about, because you are yeah, very I mean, good at knitting. <laughs> no, it's... It, it's not it's not that I'm just very good, but I'm like a knitting influencer. So like it is kind of like my job almost at this I point. I apologize. Like being a knitter. No, it, it's not something that you should apologize for because it is like I whenever I do like a um, podcast or interview, um, we only talk about like one topic, right? Mm-hmm. And then she's like, Oh yeah, there's another like whole other life as a knitter or like oh yeah there's that whole other life as an opera singer actually in santa fe this summer when i uh, was singing the title role in m butterfly um i was at a local yarn store and then this lady came in and then she's like oh my god you're that knitter justin kim and i was like mm-hmm. yeah and she's like yeah i have the magazine that you were on the cover of and like you also knit so much with stephen west and i have all of his books and you were in them and I'm like yeah cool 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 and we were like chatting for like five minutes about knitting and then she's like um so like what are you doing in Santa Fe I know you live in Europe and I said well I'm actually working in the opera right now she's like oh what do you do are you working on the wardrobe I'm like no I'm actually a singer I was <laughs> this opera called M Butterfly and she's like shut the fuck up like I was at the like opening night which role did you sing i was like i was a title character she's like (laughs) that person is this person and like she just had absolutely no idea that Mm -hmm. i was an opera singer she just knew me as a knitter so i just find it super interesting and fascinating and also kind of reassuring that if another covid or something like a black plague happens Mm -hmm. and during covid i worked as a yarn dyer for six months so this is something that i can fall back on and yeah. I didn't even have to like get a degree to do this, you know? So like, there you go, dad. Like I didn't need that safety degree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, there you go. Yeah. Hell yeah. Well, uh, Justin Kim, Kangman Justin Kim, uh, the great Kangman Justin Kim. Whatever. We'll, we'll figure out what to call you in, uh, sure. in the title of this episode. And I'm, ha- I'm going to see you uh, here in D.C. pretty soon, right? Aren't you visiting? Yeah, I'm yeah. there because I'm here now and I'm in hawaii after this to sing a concert and then i'll be in dc for two days see you then all right justin have a great day man thanks thanks for doing the show man appreciate it thank you thank you bye So I want to touch on something that we talked about in the interview, and that was that Mozart wrote a piece of fairly scatological and obscene music uh, called um, Lech mir den Aus fein rich schon sober, uh, which translates to lick my arse right well and clean. Um, like Mozart was a, a man child with a disgusting sense of humor, and it, the fact that one of the most respected musicians of all time wrote this song is very, very funny to me. And it was recently, and when I say recently, I mean in the last like decade or whatever, covered by Jack White and the Insane Clown Posse, two people that of course would put out a piece of music like this. Um, so I'm I gonna... feel like Mozart would be down. Oh, absolutely. Like if, if most composers of that era 
woke up today and found insane clown posse, they'd be like, what has happened? But Mozart would be like, these sick motherfuckers. I like yeah. these guys. Something different. Something iconic. Mozart yeah. was an iconoclast. I saw Amadeus. Yeah. I fell asleep, but I saw it. So here's the, here's the lyrics. Uh, the rediscovered, probably original text reads, and I'm the English translation, lick my arse nicely, lick it nice and clean. Nice and clean, lick my arse. That's a greasy desire. Nicely buttered, like the licking of roast meat, my daily activity. Three will lick more than two. Come on, just try it. And lick, lick, lick. Everybody lick their arse for themselves. I'm speechless. Yeah. He does it every day. My daily activity. Or maybe he licks meat every day. Why would you lick meat every day? Why would you lick meat once? And there's a few other like alternative lyrics or different translations or reinterpretations, um, but some of them aren't about licking ass. So like, why do we have them? I feel like that's the question we all need to ask ourselves. <laughs> like, what is all this? If we don't have ass licking, then what do we have? Yeah. Uh, thanks so much for listening to this episode <laughs> of Hello Chicken We're People. all just atoms floating around in a chaotic universe, just looking to lick each other's buttholes. Uh, this interview with Kagman Justin Kim was brought to you by the Mozart Conservatory. It is blowing my fucking mind right now. Eat, eat, the, eat those butts. <laughs> um, as you, on your drive home, be sure to eat a butt. And... All right, stop fucking around. Anyway, this podcast is called Hella Interesting People. <laughs> Thank you so much uh, for joining us today. It's good to be back. We have more episodes coming very soon. My name is Mike Ruby. And I'm Jacob Rubin. And we'll see you next time. Peace.